Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight on this St. Patrick's Day, we look into the history of the Irish language in Canada. There was a time when it was spoken by many Irish immigrants to this country. Now there is a push to resurrect and preserve it here, including in a community of Irish speakers in Ontario, the only one of its kind outside of Ireland. It was 75 years ago this week that Vernon, B.C.-born Larry Kwong stepped onto the ice for the New York Rangers against Maurice Richard and the Montreal Canadiens at the Montreal Forum, breaking the league's color barrier and becoming the first person and becoming the first person of Asian descent to play in the NHL. He would only play that one shift, but he went on to have a very solid career in hockey. We find out about a push to have him inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. But first, it remains one of aviation's great mysteries. What happened to Malaysian Airways Flight 370? Nine years after it vanished without a trace, with more than 230 people on board, there are still many, many unanswered questions. And noted aircraft crash investigator John Cox joins me to talk about it. But let's start with the ongoing saga of this special rapporteur that uh, Justin Trudeau named earlier this week. Uh, David Johnston, former governor general, of course, uh, someone who was appointed by Stephen Harper, reappointed by Justin Trudeau, seen as a pretty good choice, a sort of uh, someone who was above the fray in all of this to look into those allegations of China interfering in our 2019 and 2021 federal elections, as well as the integrity of elections in general in this country. Um, again, he seemed to be a pretty suitable choice, but suddenly uh, the Conservatives, the Bloc Québécois, a long list of pundits have cried foul uh, since he's, he was named, pointing out to his long ties or pointing to his long ties to the Trudeau family, the fact that he serves on the board of the Trudeau Foundation, uh, the Pierre Trudeau Foundation, that is, and much more. Now, this is not to claim somehow he wouldn't give a frank and fair assessment of the situation, including recommending perhaps some form of public inquiry. But the optics are not great. Now, I'll preface this by saying I've interviewed David Johnston a number of times. He was uh, the head of McGill when I was there as a student. Uh, he is in many ways uh, unimpeachable. But in these situations, the optics do matter. So are we in a situation where the optics are such that he will not be seen to be giving a frank and fair assessment of the situation? Well, speaking at an event in Guelph today in Ontario, Trudeau sidestepped questions about his own relationship with Johnston, and he dismissed the Tories' complaints as horrific partisan attacks. And if everyone needed a really clear indication that partisanship is more important to conservatives than actual facts and reality, their completely unfounded attacks on David Johnston are exactly that. The Prime Minister today, meanwhile, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev was in BC. He talked about this. Uh, he, he again has, has said that this is not acceptable. And he says that Canada's spy agency uh, has lost trust in the Prime Minister. That's why we're seeing these stories emerge in both uh, the Global Mail and on Global News. And he says the lack of trust extends to our Five Eyes intelligence allies made up of Australia, the UK, the US and New Zealand. Uh, our allies don't trust Justin Trudeau. Uh, they see him as weak. They see him as incapable of defending international security. And increasingly, Canada is isolated from its allies because Trudeau has failed to act in our national interest and in the interest of our, the security of our allies. 
And just to add another wrinkle to this story today, late today, the Globe and Mail published an anonymous opinion piece from the whistleblower, the person who's providing them with the documents, uh, the information that forms the foundation of all of its reporting on these allegations of interference. Uh, We'll get to what's in them in just a bit, but helping us navigate a very, very busy week in all of this is Jeremy Kinsman. He spent 40 years in the Canadian Foreign Service, including as ambassador to Russia, the European Union and Italy, high commissioner to the UK, now a distinguished fellow at the Canadian International Council. Jeremy, thank you for uh, thank you for this time on a Friday night. Well, I don't know if I want to thank you, Ben. This is a lousy plate you're serving up, but let's get it into is. It. It is. I'll, I'll pour this. I'll pour this pint gently for you on St. Patrick's Day. It has been quite the week because I think the first reaction to the appointment of David Johnston for anyone who's met him or interviewed him or, or know, knows of his career was that seems like a good choice. And then yeah, very absolutely. quickly, very quickly, it all turned into something else. Well, it has been. Uh, it's been really run as a as a an exercise. I think of sensationalist journalism. Uh, from the start, that uh, that it has become partisan. Right. I, I I do find that the criticism of Johnson. I don't know what his uh, apparently uh, personal relations with the Trudeau family are. I mean, uh, he was president of two great universities in Canada. It would be improbable uh, that and and then governor general that he wouldn't have uh, some relationship with. Justin Trudeau. I don't believe he had one particularly with Pierre Trudeau back in the day. He was on the foundation's board. A lot of people have been on it. Uh, I don't think that means anything at all. So I I regret uh, the the maligning of David Johnson. I think your first reaction, that he's an absolutely impeccable uh, person uh, on which uh, one can count to make an objective judgment whichever way it goes on this thing, was correct. And I'm sorry that, that uh, my, my own reaction is we're, we're importing a bit of Trumpism here in our country, uh, Ben, of, uh, of, of, what will I say, exploiting every issue in order to promote differences and to diminish people's uh, sense of confidence in a competence and integrity of government. I, I don't believe that should be the, the, uh, the role of the opposition. Uh, they're, they're there to propose alternatives. I thought the quote, the quote I just heard from Pierre Paulyev about how leaders of the so-called Five Eyes now distrust Trudeau is absolute nonsense. It's just invented. But now it's out there, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's how I feel about it. Uh, yeah, you want to talk I've... about the CSIS angle and, and Chinese uh, interference in, in, uh, in Vancouver? I think, uh, I think Premier Abe's uh, request that, that he get a briefing from CSIS is totally right. Uh, and yeah. I hope he gets a brief, a briefing from CSIS and not from the guy. I take, I take it from these leaks from a, a guy who's disgruntled, uh, who's now being featured front page above the fold, but they won't publish what he gave them, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been an interesting week. And one of the things that, that I landed on at one point was 
I know that there are, I've heard all the arguments why, a, uh, you know, a public inquiry wouldn't necessarily deliver the answers that everyone is hoping to hear, right? But at the same time, the whole idea of naming a special rapporteur, I felt like it, like the prime minister kind of threw David Johnston, who had a reputation that was pretty impeccable, kind of threw him into this partisan fray, knowing perhaps inadvertently, perhaps without any sense of malice, but also understanding that this is a very charged issue at a very charged time. And instead of putting David Johnston in a position where he could rise above it, he's kind of brought him down into it. And I think well, that's I don't, an unfortunate. I don't. You're, 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 you're blaming the messenger there. Uh, I, 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 I think that Trudeau picked Johnson precisely to, to get above the partisan fray. Right. And, and, yeah. and uh, the, the partisan fray didn't want to let him get above it or anybody get above it. And right. uh, I don't think that, uh, that anybody who was selected, uh, if, if, if it was seen as an alternative to this public inquiry, which would permit a partisan forum, I don't think there's any single a person alternative that would have been satisfactory. You could yeah. have, you could have, if John Beliveau were still alive, or Wayne Gretzky, <laughs> <laughs> impeccable Canadian heroes, they would yeah. have passed muster. So I, I don't buy it. I don't buy well, it. I think Jeremy, what is interesting yeah. is, is the way the story's played out. I mean, look, uh, uh, Ben, I, uh, as you said, I was a foreign service officer for 40 years, an ambassador for 15 years. I served in the United States for eight years. And during all of those years, I was, I was trying to influence people on behalf of Canada. And right. later on, 15 years, I was a, a democracy activist trying to support civil uh, society in places like uh, Russia and China. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what diplomats do. There are rules, and they're set out in, in various conventions for consulates. It's a Vienna Consular Convention. And if this consul general broke, broke the rules, she should have been thrown out, persona non grata. Uh, yeah. But uh, the RCMP investigated, and they didn't find any cause for charging any of the candidates in any of these elections. Uh, I'm not, I, if, if, if China was doing something, my God. Uh, they they should have been thrown out, and we should know what it was they were doing. But we we I think there's a a little bit of narcissistic panic going on in this country. I, I can't yeah. imagine I can't imagine what what getting somebody uh, elected uh, to the the city council of Vancouver is going to do to advance uh, China's uh, global objectives. Two. I think what is important, given the fact that Canadians are pretty resilient and pretty intelligent, is that if somebody was named or labeled uh, as being the preferred candidate of the Communist Party of China, I think that would be viewed as being the hand of God for the person's campaign. I mean, who who could win on, you know, any opponent uh, with that attached to them would be a loser. And uh, I'm I'm very very afraid, and I've heard this from 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 friends of you know Chinese descent. Uh, you know, this is lousy for for our country. Uh, the way it's it's casting aspersions on maybe well, sure. I mean Canadians. I mean you know uh, uh, old stock Canadians would feel that way. But what about all these Chinese people? Are the optics as such? Can Trudeau hang on to Johnston to do this, or does Johnston? walk away and we start from scratch and try to figure out how this all works. 
I, I, you know, it's a good question. I obviously don't know, Ben. Um, this is a, a, you know, this kind of a judicial, semi-judicial inquiry is a technique that's uh, used by Britain that has been for, you know, generations. I, I, I don't think you can just trash it, uh, uh, right. you know, in favor of a, of a public uh, uh, kind of chaotic, uh, you know, all-party uh, uh, set. You, you can just imagine what that would be like. And particularly when you're dealing with um, with with intelligence, you know the point of intelligence is it, it isn't what you found out uh, that you don't want uh, people to know about. The point of intelligence is you don't want them to know about how you got it. Right. And so and so when you reveal it, it becomes you your methods become become exposed, and that that is a vulnerability. I mean, you're you're essentially destroying an asset. Um, so, so obviously, uh, from these most uh, recent revelations from the leaker, uh, he's, he's, you know, had access to, to transcripts of telephone conversations and things. This isn't, you know, it's, it's, it's not helpful to a security agency to, you know, have this stuff thrashed about in public. But what is helpful, what is essential, I agree with the Premier of British Columbia, is to find out what it was uh, that happened. You know, yeah. and and to what extent is it is it real? I think we have a general consensus that nobody's election was affected. You know, and and the RCMP, yeah, even even the leaker says yeah. that he says you know they, that yeah. I do not believe that foreign interference dictated the present composition of our federal government, nor do I believe that any of our elected leaders is a traitor to our country. He, he wrote that today. Yeah. You saw a lot of information yeah. come across your desk over the years. I'm sure you don't. <laughs> I won't ask you where it all came from, but I mean, when you look at something like this, how should the rest of us take it? Because we see sort of official documents and ceases, and we think, wow, this must be gospel. But yeah, it, it isn't always. Well, it isn't always. I've worked with CSIS for many years, uh, and and you know uh, I've had arguments with them, and sometimes they were right, sometimes others were right. I mean, uh, the stuff. Uh, their job is essentially to be paranoid. Okay, that's what we're hiring them for. Uh, that's right. what they're supposed to do, and 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 of course their budget depends on their their plausibility. Um, they they they. I'm not saying that they. I think they're very balanced. Uh, when they when they reach a curated uh, conclusion, but in the process of getting there, they're going to have uh, uh, advocates and and uh, and arguers uh, uh, for this line or that line. And when you get leaks like this, that's what you're getting. You're getting those bits. You're not getting uh, the the conclusions. And uh, when when the clerk of the Privy Council uh, testifies. Or her deputy uh, testify for security testifies. They're giving you a, an overall conclusion, and and the idea that we don't trust those people uh, anymore to me is uh, is very saddening, you know. Yeah. Uh, but there it is. It, it's the world I, we have. It, it's the world of social I, networks, and everybody's. You know, you're not obliged to accept uh, what is the truth. You you have your truth. And yeah. and you uh, it, it it's you don't it's not necessarily believe in the evidence you believe what you want to believe, and uh, so it goes whether it's about vaccines or about this. Yeah, you know? I suppose so. It you says... got to get the facts out there. I agree with that, and let's hope it can happen. And it, uh, let's hope it it it, it can, you sort of depart from this emphasis, this this rather nasty emphasis on on individuals and people. Jeremy Kinsman, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. 
This is one. This is a story that I've you know I covered when it happened. Uh, the disappearance of flight MH three seventy nine years ago, March the eighth, twenty fourteen. It went missing. One of the great mysteries of aviation began that night. Uh, with 239 people on board. It was on a red eye from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia to Beijing. Not a very difficult flight. There were two Canadians on board as well, Xiaomo uh, Bai and Muktesh Mukherjee. Now, the flight was making its way towards China about 1.19 a.m., 38 minutes into the flight after a last radio communication as it crossed over from Malaysian uh, air traffic control jurisdiction into Vietnamese uh, airspace. Bam, gone, off radar, never to be seen again, really. Now, there's a new docu-series that I watched over the weekend that I found was very well done. I mean, it throws out some theories that are have been contested, but uh, here's a taste of, of, the preview, of, of the trailer. Planes go up. Planes go down. What planes don't do is just vanish off the face of the earth. We have breaking news. Malaysia Airlines confirms it has lost contact with a plane carrying 227 passengers. It seems to have vanished into the net. What do we tell the family members? What do we tell the media? My daughter asked me, where is Papa? It's just so unimaginable. I felt completely shattered. I lived in denial about the plane having some sort of crash. The monde s'arrête, quoi. Tout d'un coup, ils disent, mais c'est pas possible. C'est un cauchemar. Réveillez-moi. What happens next is like a rip in the fabric of reality. Theories about the missing plane are going viral. It's possible it was hijacked. We don't know. This very mysterious and very suspicious cargo. The pilot's home flight simulator was removed by police. I have the real evidence. It's there. And you can't deny that. Never in history have 239 people been declared dead on the basis of mathematics alone. You know, nature hates a vacuum, and there is no explanation in 2014 as to why a modern jetliner would simply vanish. Vanish. So joining us now with more on this is someone who is perhaps one of the most noted aircraft accident investigators out there. Captain John Cox is the CEO of Safety Operating Systems. And again, an aircraft accident investigator. You may know him from uh, all those uh, aircraft disaster shows that that I watch a lot of. And he joins me now from Tampa in Florida. Captain Cox, thank you. Glad to help. Uh, good to see you again. Yeah, I mean, we, this one, you know, I, I remember when it disappeared because I'd been based in Asia for quite a while. I'd flown Malaysian Airlines quite often. And uh, this one, I mean, ever, I guess, do you remember back to that day when it went missing and, and what your initial impressions of what might have happened were? When the initial reports came out, it was, we thought it would be a routine accident investigation. There was nothing to indicate it, but then there was no debris field. And so they expanded the search area and there was still no debris field. And that was the the point at which I began to wonder what's going on here. This is unusual not to have debris found within 24 to 48 hours after an airliner goes missing. And this one, too, I mean, it just, you know, these days we were so used to being able to track absolutely everything all the time. Uh, this one just vanished, which none of us thought could happen in this day and age. It did. When the transponder powered off, that raised some questions in my mind because it's either a pretty major electrical problem, in which case I expected the airplane to go directly to the nearest airfield it could find, or or there was something more to it. And that, that, of course, that whole few minutes from the time it 
it acknowledges the air traffic control frequency change to the point at which it goes dark. It was the spawning ground of conspiracy theories, which leaves, you know, remain to this day nine years later. We do know, we think we know a few things. Uh, It was headed from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. That's a pretty straightforward journey. Right as it's heading, about to hit Vietnamese airspace, it vanishes. And then we think we know where it went next. I mean, that that, that much is determined, right? That it turned back around and seems to have gone in the opposite direction. There is a high degree of confidence for several reasons, which I'll I'll list in just a second, um, that we know where the airplane tracked we know that it had electrical power. We know that the it was right along what is known as an FIR boundary between the, the two air traffic control regions, which happens to be right along the Vietnamese border. We know that the airplane flew at a specific altitude for the length of the flight. And we know that it was communicating via a system known as ACARS with the satellites. So that's one of the ways that we know the airplane was electrically powered. So those things we know, uh, the route of flight determined by military radar, as well as the ACARS messages and the timing that they were sent, they were able to determine general position and that aligned with the uh, radar. So we know the track to a high degree of confidence. As we were watching the early days of this unfold, and you already mentioned it, that after, you know, no debris field within 24, 48 hours, no idea really what happened early on is very rare in of itself. What were you thinking uh, just about those early days of how information was leaking out, uh, all of that, because it all seemed very unusual? It was highly unusual. As you would expect, I got pulled in by the media to be a uh, on-site sort of resident expert. And I was getting the same questions. What do you think? Well, I think we'll find the debris field. That was my initial thoughts. And then when we didn't, and we started seeing evidence that the airplane had actually turned, then I started wondering, have we got something unusual here? Uh, Is it a hijack? Is it something nefarious? Do what do we know? And there were far more questions than there were answers. And as an investigator, that's a bad position to be in because you like to be able to feel as though you have some control over the investigation and some process uh, that will get to the answers that everybody wants. And with Malaysia 370, we did not have that. Yeah, and that in of itself is exceedingly rare. I mean, I've I've been doing this since 1986. And I think this is the most unusual single accident that I can um, I can think of. There are still so many questions as to what. What is your best estimation of what happened? I think we know the what, and I'm pretty confident in that. I think there's a high degree of certainty in the what. The thing that we don't know is the where. I think that would provide a lot of closure for people if we could find the wreckage. But as far as what happened, I think it's pretty self-evident because the airplane flew a track to a specific point, and then it turned and it flew another track, and then it flew that for a while, and then it did another track, and then another one. That requires command. That is not something that an autopilot system will do by itself. It has to either be entered in the flight management computer, or it has to be commanded by specific headings and those changes. That uh, says that if it was commanded, someone with the knowledge of how to command it and the opportunity to command it had to enter those commands. So 
I don't think there's any question that the airplane track was deliberate. And I don't think there's any question that the candidate pool of people with knowledge and opportunity gets very, very small. I think that we have an intentional act, uh, and I think the data supports that conclusion. I think that we have some ambiguity about where the, the wreckage is, but it's in the South Indian Ocean. I think we can say that definitively. Uh, it's just a matter of that's a huge, huge, very remote part of the planet. It's also the geographic or the topographical out the layout of the ocean floor. There's a lot of mountains. It's going to be hard to find if, in fact, we ever find it. Captain John Cox is a CEO of Safety Operating Systems, an aircraft accident investigator. We're talking about the disappearance nine years ago of MH370, Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, on its way from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. A red-eye flight vanishes off off all systems. Uh, Just as it's crossing into Vietnamese airspace, we track it as it turns back. Seems to wind up somewhere over the southern Indian Ocean, which is not a, which is a difficult place to find anything. I guess one of the big mysteries here, and I mentioned this earlier, nature hates a vacuum. We really have no idea. I mean, there was a lot of background checks into the pilot and into the, uh, and, and into the first officer. We don't know why, right? We, we have no idea why this happened. Right. That's one of the hardest questions is why. The first officer would very recently upgraded onto the airplane. Some of the things I've read said that he he was planning to get married later in that summer. He he appeared to be on a normal career path progression within Malaysia Airline. He was highly regarded by his peers and uh, people he flew with. The captain was a very senior, experienced captain, stable. And so there's a lot of questions as to the why. And I think that's one of the the most difficult parts for the families. It certainly is for the investigators and the regulators, because without that question being answered, it's hard to say, well, how do we prevent it from happening again? Because often in the past, if if it has involved a pilot, and I'm thinking uh, of German wings and so on, there does seem to have been a fairly rapid ability to try to figure out at least a theory about the why. With some of the other pilot suicides, it's been obvious in hindsight that this was a troubled individual. And now the question is posed, how do we find someone with the mental challenges prior to them taking such drastic action? But in this case, in Malaysia 370, we don't have those markers, those indicators that there was something this this seriously wrong. What about the search for the wreckage? Because as you mentioned, debris fields are usually, well, pretty easy to find. But this if this went down where we think it went down, uh, that's not the case. The debris field mystery is one of the most difficult for the investigators. If it hit in one piece, you'd expect debris. If it hit and broke into a lot of small pieces, you would expect debris. There have been 28 pieces that have of the wreckage that have been identified or are considered probable pieces of the wreckage, some of them from the inside, some from the outside. The whole debris field question is one of the most perplexing parts of this thing. There should have been debris. Where is it? You know, after nine years, it's scattered to the point that it's not likely to be found. But there have been parts, an aerodynamic flight control called a flapper on, and it was identified by a serial number. So we know it came off the airplane. And there's only one missing left-hand flapper on 
on a Boeing 777 in the world, and that's Malaysia 370s. So that's pretty conclusive. And when you talk to the experts, the ocean current experts, that also reinforces the fact that it's in the southern Indian Ocean. It's just a matter of where. Did it surprise you that that despite all the efforts to find it and all the trying to sort of plot out a, a likely uh, debrief where it could have gone down, does it surprise you you've never been able to find more of it, that it's been sort of weighted to wash up on shore, whether it be in South Africa or or on the west coast or on the east coast of Africa? It did surprise me. I, I maintained throughout the early stages of the investigation that we would find it. And I based that on the fact that historically, we've always found them. If they're in the water, we found debris fields or whatever, but there are extremely few cases of where we've not been able to locate wreckage and determine cause. Based on that, I felt as though we would find it. I mean, there was certainly an effort made by the Malaysian government, the Chinese government, the Australian government. There was a lot of resources put into searching for this aircraft. And I was confident in the ability in the of these professionals. I'm still surprised that we haven't found more of it than we have. The families, again, on the ninth anniversary have, have and as is, as would be expected, have asked that we continue, that the search be continued. Do you think, do you think it's still worthwhile trying to find it? Or do you think that the, that if there's debris, it's now spread far and wide? I think the political will to keep pouring very expensive assets into the search uh, has waned. I certainly respect and understand the family's desire to continue to search for it so that they can gain closure. We will certainly never find it if we're not looking for it. So the question is, do we want to find it? And if so, are we willing to to commit the necessary assets? And that's a political decision that the individual governments will have to make. Because it's been kind of left to the families at this point, right, to sort of continue, as is often the case. Uh, it's been it, when, when there's a mystery at play, uh, left to the families to try to continue to keep this front and center. It is. And, you know, they have done that admirably over these nine years. There is an ongoing hunger, if you will, for information, hard facts on Malaysia 370. That appetite is still there. I think that it will remain so. When you look back and you think when the world has been so interested in an aircraft that has not been found, the last time it was Amelia Earhart. That to this day remains an open mystery, but also one that the public has a great interest in. Do you expect this will carry that kind of longevity that that we will not know as we have not known with that other most most famous aviation mystery? I think the likelihood that we'll find it is waning. I think that if we do find it now, it will be somewhat by accident by a fisherman, a trawler, finding something uh, unexpected and that causing additional review in a, in a specific area. But I think it'll be by chance now. Did you ever imagine that, you know, in, 24, in the 21st century, we'd have this happen? No, I really did not. And it needs to be very clearly understood that that it cannot happen today is that we are doing full-time monitoring around the globe now so that an aircraft that experiences any sort of abnormality is not going to disappear in the way that Malaysia 370 did. Captain John Cox, as always, thank you so much. My pleasure. Good to see you. 
Hundreds of people uh, took part in a rally in downtown Nanaimo yesterday here on Vancouver Island to demand more be done to keep violent offenders off the street. Here's what's happened. Tensions in the city between people living in a homeless encampment or homeless encampments and their neighbors and business owners is nothing new. But, uh, you know, the deep-seated issues of homelessness and mental health and addiction are being felt in cities right across the country and towns. But it's come to a bit of a boiling point in Nanaimo after a local business owner named Clint Smith was shot in the stomach over the weekend after he and a group of others went into a homeless encampment to try to get some property stolen from Smith's mechanic shop that they believed was there. Now, he underwent emergency surgery, and I believe he's going to be okay, uh, but it was, it was, he was in bad shape. And while the local RCMP say people should not try to take matters into their own hands, which is advisable. It highlights a real problem where those living and running businesses in and around encampments worry that some in them are acting with impunity and they're left to either suffer the consequences or try to sort it out. I will pull this and it's an alarm to, to, for me to feel safe. I don't feel safe in my neighborhood. We didn't grow up with this. I don't know what's going on. We don't want to see our citizens feeling they can't go to our parks, that they can't stay in their houses safely. Well, joining me now is Colin Middleton. He's interim chair of the Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association. Colin, thanks so much for tonight for, for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I mean, I know this is about Nanaimo, and I'm in Victoria, and so I, you know, I'm familiar with what's been, what's been going on in Nanaimo over many years now. But this could be about many different places now. What's happened? What's been happening there? And, and why are people so on edge? Well, I think, I mean, what has happened in this last week, you know, has been described by many, including our mayor, as, as unfortunately um, an inevitab- inevitability. Um, right. There's, there's been so much um, rampant petty theft and uh, violent encounters and intimidation and reports of, of um, open-air illicit drug use and prowling and all. I mean, you just, just the list goes on and on um, in the last... Um, couple of years and it and it really has been escalating in in probably the last two years um, and at this point you know with with this uh, tragic situation that's that's happened thankfully yes Clint um, is going to be okay now mind you he has a very lengthy recovery ahead of him and he is not going to be in any position to be able to work um, in, in his auto mechanic shop for quite some time um, you know we the we've been raising the issue of of public safety as a just generically blanket across the board for for people of all walks of life uh, all socioeconomic backgrounds um and and really we we do feel like this has become an emergency in in Nanaimo and we've been pleading with the provincial government to change course on policies to help step step in and help us um, bring the temperature down in community uh, so that we can all have safety and security. Um, and, you know, that this is where we're at. We realize that this is a complex issue uh, with housing and affordability and all this going on. Um, but really, we're just trying to, um, we're trying to have a conversation uh, in a complex um, environment to to hopefully um, de-escalate um, the, the tensions and to to find a, a, a positive future. 
Yeah, because I, I get, I get the obviously. I mean, I'm in Victoria. We have there's similar issues here. I mean, the it's very complex. But you know what's not mm-hmm. complex? People don't feel safe. That's not complex. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. I see it here too, and it's it's one of those those you know. horrible situations where you understand that people have addiction and mental health issues and and they have housing issues and you want people to be taken care of, right? And I always Mm -hmm. felt like it's a probably relatively small minority of people who do a lot of the bad, who sort of tuck themselves into those communities for for cover, right? I I don't know that Mm -hmm. to be 100% true, but I sense that here. Um, So what do you do? I mean, what do you do? Because, you know, listening to some of the clips from from the rally you had yesterday, I mean, people don't feel safe walking the streets of their own home of their own town and business owners are suffering these losses. And clearly, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I don't imagine Clint didn't think twice about going in there with a group that day. I mean, then, you know, police always say, don't take the law, don't do that. Right. But Mm -hmm. clearly they'd reached a breaking point. Yeah. Well, I think you have to remember too, that, you know, this particular situation, um, you know, was, was one of many, um, stolen property recovery operations that many people in many different communities across BC have have been um, engaging in um, with you know various degrees of confrontation. Um, the the amount of stolen property that is ending up in these encampments um, and in open air uh, uh, drug markets is astounding. And so it, it's not uncommon for people to recognize their own stolen property and to share photos online about, you know, this, we found this um, object that has these unique features. Do you think it might be yours? And yeah, a lot of people have been reunited with stolen property, um, uh, given, just given the volume of, of, of this uh, type of occurrence. I understand in this case there hasn't been. I mean, this is, I remember cases here in Victoria too where things turned violent, right? There was, you know, that things got out of hand. Um, no arrests in this case yet, right? That's my understanding, correct. I mean, there's, it is an active investigation. I think, you know, the news reports of your listeners, I think they, if, they, if they're following the news, they'll, they'll be able to find uh, the, the relevant details. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there is, there haven't been any arrests related to the case. I believe there were a few individuals that were held on unrelated, uh, outstanding warrants, um, that, that were apprehended, um, following the incident. Um, I do believe there's at least a, a couple people that are either not cooperating with police or are still at, still at large. Yeah. I mean, what does this symbolize? I mean, as I was saying off the top, it's happening in Nanaimo, but it could be happening. I mean, we could be talking to someone in, in many different places in the country right now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, this is what I was hoping to talk to you about. I mean, we, we really have a situation where, where everybody feels unsafe. And it's not – and it's, it's, this is not a um, – we're, we're trying to describe this as a nonpartisan issue. This is, this is the feeling of um, insecurity um, and, and um, divisiveness and polarization of a conversation about community. And um, we, we really need to, uh, you know, kind of reach out across the void and, and have these kinds of conversations in an environment in, in, in British Columbia and in Canada uh, that is just, it's just gone too far. Um, uh, and, and it's to the point now, and Nanaimo is a bit of a crucible for these, 
these uh, national issues, uh, given given you know its its unique geography and and political environment. But uh, we really do need to have a conversation about you know how how we treat treat one another in our in our society. Colin, what what do you think? I mean, we hear lots about about all the issues that have led to this, right? Why the encampments exist, and I think everyone mm-hmm. sympathizes with the fact that some people struggle with mental health and addiction and homelessness. At the same time, you want people to feel safe walking the streets of their town, and you don't want business owners having to deal with these issues of petty crime forever. So, what mm-hmm. what would you like to see done? Well, um, I think one of the the intersecting uh, issues here is the uh, the extremely dangerous drug crisis that we currently have in right. in British Columbia and in Canada and the U.S. as well, um, you know, there's there is what I would call cultural entrenchment of illicit drug use in both popular culture and counterculture. We have it's good to be bad, it's bad to be good. Like this fundamental narrative has infiltrated so many of our youth and our young adults. We really need all the help we can get from media, schools, public servants, um, and and perhaps um, equally as important in this time as right needed to say it, our celebrities. Like we, we need we need to have a conversation at a societal scale about about what what it means to um, uh, feel included and to um, not feel like um, we need to go down the path of, of um, you know, experimenting with hard drugs, perhaps falling into addiction. We need to uh, help each other, um, yeah. you, know, not, you know, not bully people or, or, or stigmatize people in a way that makes them feel like they need to um, cope. And, and, you know, there's people with lots of trauma. I mean, this is a very large conversation, but I do think that, um, you know, from a, at least in the short term, you know, we really do need at the provincial level, um, you know, to to step in um, with with supports for like in in the short term here for for um, uh, a public safety. And I don't just mean you know RCMP and and um, you know providing more money to to um, advocacy groups and so on and so on. I mean we need to you know we do need to have accountability, and we need to actually recognize. Um, you know that with these these drugs, these opioids that are fueling um, all these overdose deaths and this and what I would describe sometimes as depravity and, and a desperate behavior to to fund a drug habit, we need to we need to help people deescalate. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's such a you're right. It's such a huge issue because I mean, here we are talking about petty crime and people feeling a little unsafe on the streets, and then we're getting into you know the social, the hugely complicated social issues around addiction and safe supply and all those things. But I, I guess what what it boils down to, and what I thought was interesting about the Nanaimo situation, is that it's a reminder that there are a lot of people out there just going about their daily lives who suddenly don't feel so safe in their communities anymore, and that's a mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and it's. And, you know, with all the compassion and sympathy that that um, we can muster, you know, we do need to, um, you know, help our, our fellow man. We the people that are that are struggling, you know, and, and are hoping for, you know, safe public safety. You know, when we see the people suffering and overdosing and dying on our streets, like there is no yeah. there's no glee here. Like we're we are this is these are traumatic events. These are traumatic and distressing it is. circumstances for everybody. And that's yeah. the point. 
Yeah. Uh, Colin, thank you so much for taking the time on this Friday to fill us in about all this, and uh, we'll be watching. Okay, thank you. Well, you know, I grew up in Montreal. I spent time, I saw my first hockey game at the Forum back in 1975. The Habs beat the Leafs 2-1. to one. So it's always occupied a pretty special place in my memory. And it was, I didn't know this story until recently. It was 75 years ago this week that NHL history was made at the Forum in Montreal. On March 13th, 1948, Chinese-Canadian Larry Kwong from Vernon, B.C. stepped onto the ice for the New York Rangers for one single shift at the end of the game. A brief, very brief, but momentous moment as he broke the league's color barrier, becoming the first person of Asian descent to play in the NHL. Despite a lot of promise and talent, it would be the only time he suited up in the NHL, the man they called the China Clipper. He passed away in 2018 at the age of 94, but here's how he described stepping on the ice that night. I was really proud, and I was, I said, I finally made it. Larry Kwong. He was born in 1923, just weeks before the government of the Dominion of Canada enacted the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1923, which completely prohibited Chinese immigrants from entering this country. We're coming up on the 100-year anniversary of that, by the way. He battled discrimination throughout his young life, but he would find success with the legendary Trail Smoke Eaters in the mid-40s. He was scouted by the Rangers. He had a ton of skill. He played with the Rangers farm team called the New York Rovers and was their leading scorer in 1946. But a future in the NHL just wasn't meant to be. Jean Belleville rated him as a, as a great hockey player. Dickie Moore said he could do it all. Um, Larry once scored two goals on Jacques Plant in 47 seconds. He had grown up in the Chinese exclusion era and I think it, this was a continuation of that exclusion. Well, 75 years later, his family, including his granddaughter, are now sharing his story. In a predominantly white sport, you know, we can, we can kind of share his story and talk about it and, and let people know that he was there and he, he was ready to play. But because of his race, they wouldn't let him. And there are calls now to have Larry Kwong inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. And one of those campaigning for that is Mo Hasham. He's founder of Hockey for Youth, an organization that works to make hockey more accessible to newcomer youth, newcomer youth who may not otherwise have a chance to play. Mo, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. This is quite the, this is quite the story. This is quite the story. Such a little blip in hockey, in, in, you know, ice time-wise, just a little blip, but historically, such a big moment. Yeah, look, I, I think you set it up beautifully. You know, Larry, first of all, was born in Canada, and, and the way he gets his start in hockey, you know, with a pair of $4 skates that are too big for him, using uh, magazines as shin pads, uh, and, and just spending as much time as he could playing the game. I, I just got a note uh, a day or two ago from, from somebody in Ottawa who's, who's um, a father uh, grew up with Larry and she uh, vividly recalls, um, uh, you know, Larry coming over to their house to skate outside in the backyard on the backyard rink. Wow. Um, you know, so, so the, the story is not well known, uh, but it's, it's really important that it is known. Uh, similar to the stories of Herb Carnegie, who was posthumously inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame uh, this last year, and Willie O'Ree, who was inducted in 2018. Uh, right. the, these are individuals who have had a profound impact on the game. And uh, for whatever reason, we just, we, we weren't told these stories. Um, you know, we weren't, 
the stories were uncovered um, later in history and later in our time. And, and, you know, frankly speaking, for me, I, I'm a born and raised Vancouverite. I now live in the center of the universe, as it were, here in, in Toronto. Um, but the fact that I didn't know Larry's story growing up, I didn't know Willie's story growing up, I didn't know Herb Carnegie's story, story growing up, uh, that makes it uh, even that much more compelling because Larry was an excellent hockey player and an excellent Canadian. Um, you know, one of the things that people don't know about Larry is, you know, Ben, you talked about the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, mm-hmm. Larry served in the Canadian Army in 1944-45. So, you know, at a time when the community is being actively excluded, you have Japanese internment camps, uh, here's Larry who's serving the Canadian Army and then playing for the Canadian Army. So despite all these barriers that existed for him, he did everything in his power to get to where he needed to get to. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I found so interesting in Rory, too, is that although, I mean, you know, back in the six-team NHL, I mean, with all that was going on, it was hard to make the, the bigs, no matter how good you are. Playing one shift against Morris Richard at the Forum is, in of itself, a remarkable achievement. But he went on to have a successful career in hockey in, 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 in the Senior League, and then he went to coach in Europe. Like, he found a life in hockey, and many don't. He he did, exactly. You've, you've hit it on the head, right? In 51... Uh, you know, he, he's the MVP of the Quebec Senior Hockey League. They win a championship at Valley Field. Uh, they go on to win the, the Senior Canadian Championship, the Alexander Cup. So, you know, he, he's when you look at his point total, for example, uh, 419 goals, 868 points. So he's not just out there skating along. He's actually having an impact on the game and, you know, playing against players like Jean Beliveau and Jacques Plante and Toe Blake. Uh, you know, for example, in 1951-52, he's second in goals and second in points only to Jean Beliveau. So he can keep up with these players and to have a prolonged career the way that he did, whether it was with the Rovers or the Valleyfield Braves, or even then going on to coach and play in Europe. Uh, very groundbreaking when you think about the discrimination and racism that he would have faced throughout his life, uh, you know, not only then, you know, skating in North America and, and, and making it to the Rangers and making it to the NHL, but then after that, going to Europe, um, you know, he's, he's a groundbreaker in Switzerland in particular, where he starts coaching, he coaches five teams uh, in Switzerland. He plays in England. Um, you know, this, and, and by the way, in England, he scores 55 goals in 55 games for the Nottingham yeah, Panthers. I saw, I saw, right? I saw that. 57, that 58. Yeah. I've seen English so, hockey. It's not great, but he, but he just lit it up, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he drew fans, right? Like we talk about yeah. players nowadays drawing fans. Larry drew fans with the New York Rovers in particular. Um, you know, many, many Asians came out to see him play. I mean, he was gift, he was gifted the, the key to Chinatown. Uh, in New York City uh, by by the mayor of Chinatown. So, you know, wow. he, he, he draws crowds. Uh, there's a beautiful story that Chad soon, I know, I know you played a clip of Chad, uh, and Chad and I are working on this campaign together along with others. Uh, but, but there's a great story of him even learning French. So I did a, an interview with Radio Canada this week in, in French, and, and yeah. uh, you know, I shared the story of Larry opening up his, his first restaurant, Larry Kwong's. Uh, you know, when he's in Valley Field, you know, he learns how to right. speak French. He opens up a Chinese restaurant. He continues to learn French when he's in Lausanne. 
Um, so it, it, it's a story of perseverance. It's a it's a story of uh, remarkable ability to overcome every single barrier that was put in front of him. But then he he really makes an effort to to uh, acclimatize himself to wherever he is, you know, and that's what makes it it fun. And uh, there's a great story of Toe Blake, uh, you know, getting mad at Larry in, in Valley Field because all the, the visiting teams would come in and eat at Larry's. And so Toe Blake would be like, well, why are these guys eating here? They should be eating here. <laughs> <laughs> and Toe Blake, of course, opened a tavern himself in Montreal. I mean, it was common in those days for, for hockey stars to open up, uh, open up restaurants. Valley Field, if people don't know where it is, it's sort of, it's about 45 minutes outside of Montreal. It's kind of similar to where Barry is compared to Toronto. It's, uh, but yeah, I mean, I was just impressed by what an incredible career he had had. Um, and, and you do get the impression, I know his granddaughter's clip was, was pretty unequivocal about the fact that, that because of who he was, that kept him from the NHL. But it certainly feels like if anyone had a good case for having had a longer big league career, he's one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're looking at, you know, 15, 16 years of, of professional hockey. You know, he, he wins his first championship at the age of 18 uh, in B.C., and look, the game itself, uh, you know, and the business that it's become, whether it's the NHL or pro hockey leagues, you know, there are challenges around racism and discrimination and exclusion. Uh, you know, the work that I do at Hockey for Youth Foundation, the kids that we work with represent 38 different countries of origin. We've worked with over 600 kids and teenagers. Uh, we're in four cities in Canada uh, and we're going to be expanding out to the West, uh, Edmonton, Calgary, and Vancouver. We're going to get a program in Vernon in Larry's honor and a program in Calgary in Larry's honor. And, and, and here's the thing. When we think about that exclusion that exists today, uh, it's on so many levels. Um, you know, you can be excluded out of the game because of the barriers re- related to your culture, your gender, your religion, your identity, um, the fact that you don't have money to play the game. Um, you know, all of these barriers that exist today uh, existed back then for a player like Larry or someone like Herb Carnegie, who was offered a contract by the Rangers, but it was putrid in comparison to the other players that were, were, were playing in the NHL. Or someone like Willie, who's, who's kept out of the league and makes it in and then plays a handful of games, you know, uh, doesn't really have that true opportunity. And so we always say, and I always say, and, you know, one of our slogans is the only barrier should be the board. And Larry, along with, you know, Herb and Willie, are, are those folks who live that. They, they, the only barrier for them was the board. They made it. Yeah, they, and and they that needs to be recognized. They love the game. And, this would be, I mean, there's been a lot, of, a lot of moves now to try to get people recognized who, who did more than just play hockey. And, he, and Larry Kwong feels like an obvious uh, candidate for, for induction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, this is the builder category. So these are people who have had an impact on the game, uh, not just on the stat sheet, but actually doing things to enhance and, and to, uh, you know, bring bring people forward within the game by the work that they did on the ice and off the ice. I mean, when we look at, you know, Herb Carnegie, for example, he didn't play a game in the NHL, but he was instrumental uh, in other ways, he started the first hockey school in Canada, uh, you know, and so breaking barriers and building the game. When you look at Larry and what he's done, what he did over time, 
including coaching in Europe, uh, that's groundbreaking. That's how you're building the game. Uh, at a time when, you know, frankly, you know, there's a lot of discrimination and racism that he was going to face. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I have to tell you that Chad Soon, who's an elementary school teacher out of Vernon, if he doesn't keep Larry's story alive over the past 15 years, uh, we're not having this conversation. Uh, you know, I got, I got in touch with Chad back in the fall and I said, look, I work very closely with, you know, the NHL and, and clubs and we're trying to do more inclusion work. And, 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 and I said, look, I just want to help in whatever way we can. And it's been tremendous because the media really has picked up this story, the importance of this story. Um, you know, my sister lives in Victoria where you are, and she sent me a screenshot of a Globe and Mail uh, news article about Larry that we're, Chad and I are both quoted in. So yeah. the media picking this up is part of this. That's really important. And then, you know, we've got a lot of support from, you know, various people. Rain Carnegie, who's Herb Carnegie's uh, grandson. Stan Fischler, an award-winning journalist and broadcaster and is in the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame, says Larry needs to be in the Hall of Fame. So we're, we've got a mobilized movement. We've got almost 10,000 signatures on our change.org petition. And when we submitted last week the public submission to the Hockey Hall of Fame, Chad and I got a beautiful message from Christina, Larry's daughter. And she said, you know, it's the fifth anniversary of my dad's passing. That's and right. you guys submitted to the Hockey Hall of Fame. So the, the, the timing of all of this is important. But what's even more important to me and Chad and Chris Wu out of the United States, who's been working on this campaign, Chester Sitt, who's done a short documentary about Larry, and Dan Harbridge, who's on my team. What's important to all of us is that now this story is being amplified and it will always be told. And that's what's important, that this is a stepping stone. If he gets in this year, which is what we want, you know, Larry would have turned 100 this year. It's his 75th anniversary. That's what we want, but it's out of our control now. But what, what I'm saying to your listeners is understand that hockey has this rich history. We just haven't yeah. been told. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and that's I, what's I, important to me. To me, I mean, I remember growing up with my hockey cards. It was so important to be able to look at those black and white photos and see and see different. It's, you know, just seeing the picture of Larry in, in his New York Rangers uniform is so is so incredible because you're looking back at a piece of distant, distant, distant history. Now, this is 75 years ago. And yet there he is, you know, looking like the guys of his era, you know, the, the Maurice Richards and the hair and, you know, the way they look, the sticks they were carrying. And it's so important that that history be reflected to anybody coming up wanting to play hockey now who may not see themselves on the ice. Yeah, absolutely. We, we want to make sure that, um, you know, kids growing up these days, especially those, uh, you know, kids of color, uh, indigenous kids that, that may, uh, you know, anyone who identifies as BIPOC, we, we don't see uh, often what's happening in the hockey world, but there are these changes. Kim Davis, I was taught Kim's a very dear friend and a mentor you know, she's, she's an African-American woman who's an executive at the NHL who's really led instrumental changes yeah. at the NHL and investments mm -hmm. in programs like ours and others to enhance and, and, and offer the game because the game is it, it's so exclusive. Um, you know, Hockey Canada today, I did an interview today about Irfan Chaudhry being, you know, uh, appointed as their vice, first vice president of diversity and inclusion. 
I mean, yep. these are groundbreaking things that happen. And there are so many people that came before, you know, we yep. talked about Herb, we talked about Willie, we've talked about Larry and his campaign to get him in. That reflection is important because somebody's going to look and see Larry and say, hey, I look like Larry. I want to go and achieve something the way that Larry did. And that's, yeah. that's I mean, impactful for us as a country. It's, this isn't just about hockey now. We're talking about, you know, going and chasing your dreams, but seeing someone that did it before you and might have done it in very, very, like, more difficult circumstances that you might have. Um, yeah, I mean, it's taken a long time for hockey. It's taken a long time for hockey to catch up here, but it's been it's good to see it happening now. We actually interviewed John Paris Jr. a little while ago, who's another gentleman who's one of the first black coaches in in Canada, who to one of the first black general managers in, in in the NHL or the IHL rather in professional hockey. So it's good to see these stories emerging, and it's great that we're on the 75th anniversary of that day that Larry Kwong stepped on the ice and at the you know the mecca of hockey, the Montreal Forum that we're talking about him again tonight. Mo, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And if anybody wants more information, they can go to hockeyforyouth.org and click on It's Larry's Turn. They can sign the petition. They can buy a commemorative hoodie. And if anyone wants to help us with getting that program going in Calgary, we we certainly want to welcome people into our family to, to make that happen. All right. Have a great weekend, Mo. Thank you. Thanks. You too, Ben. Here's how to wish someone a happy St. Patrick's Day in Irish. Benachti Nathila Parikart. Benachti Nathila Parikart. There you have it. Happy St. Patrick's Day in Irish, no less. On this St. Patrick's Day with a name like O'Hara Byrne, you can probably guess what my lineage is. Now, it's the family's been in Canada for a mighty long time. So there's no Irish spoken. I mean, I, I, I lived in Ireland for a bit, and I have to confess that I don't think I ever spoke pronounced an Irish word properly, unfortunately. So it's a bit of a bit of a secret shame of mine that I can't speak a word of it. But um, my mom took some classes. She lived in Belfast for a bit, or in Armagh, actually, and she uh, she picked it up a little bit. But it is a tough language. It's not like English at all. Um, so on this St. Patrick's Day, I thought we'd spend the next hour not talking about green beer, but about other things Irish-related. And one of the most fascinating things I find is the Irish language. Um, you know, when we think of Ireland, we often think of the Irish lilt in English. But up until the end of the 18th century, Irish, an ancient language, was actually the predominant one spoken on the island. And many of those who immigrated to Canada throughout the 19th century spoke Irish as a first language. It's estimated about 200,000 to 250,000 daily Canadian speakers of Irish were here in 1890. That's a lot. But as the population assimilated, and there was, of course, anti-Irish discrimination, the language would all but vanish from this country, and it wasn't doing so well in Ireland either for a very long time. But in recent decades, the language has seen a revival there, and thanks in part to membership in the European Union and a desire to promote its culture distinct from that of Britain's and so on, there's been a real emphasis on the Irish language itself, especially in education. So in April of 2016, the total number of people aged three and over in Ireland who could speak Irish was nearly 40% of the country, 1.7 million people. Now, if you speak it regularly, there are areas where they do. Uh, But still, the the language in many ways has been at least revived. Here in Canada, the return has been smaller and slower for obvious reasons. But part of the push to resurrect and preserve Irish in this country is exemplified by the establishment of something called a Gualtacht in in southeastern Ontario, in this case, near Napanee. It's the only one here in Canada, the only one 
outside of Ireland. It officially opened back in 2007. Now, Gwaltacht is a collective whole of areas in which Irish is spoken as the community language and in which the culture and traditions of the language are very much alive and thriving. So, how do you how do you maintain what does it sound like there's all i had so many questions but i was really interested in knowing what the history of the language was in this country as well as what are the efforts like to try to resurrect and preserve it to help me do that there is no one more qualified than my next guest donal odul is the elected head of the irish language community in north america his book is called mila mila exchange it's uh, the irish language in canada it gives a historical overview of it in this country and he joins us now. Thanks for your time. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Well, thank you for inviting me on your show. And la la padrig sonnerite. Have a very happy St. Patrick's Day to yourself. Perfect. And I have to say, you did a really good job on the book title there. Good <laughs> you, job. You walked me through it. You walked me through it. <laughs> The history of the Irish language is a broad question, but the Irish language came to this country with a whole wave of Irish immigration. And it was quite prevalent in, in Canada at one point. Very much so. Very surprisingly so, especially what kind of we know as our cultural memory in Canada, and there are reasons why we don't know the story, but there were, uh, there's about 500 years of history of the Irish language being in Canada uh, since it was first recorded here, all the way up to very heavy immigration. The majority of people um, actually came pre-famine from Ireland and Canada. The, the famine had an effect, but not as outsized of an effect as kind of cultural memory would say. In terms of the language, it was most definitely all the way up until till the famine. It was the sole language of about 40 to 50% of the Irish population. And if you include bilingual people, that 70% of Irish emigrants would know this language and likely would be more comfortable in this language. My struggle and one of my victories in writing this book and this peer-reviewed study is I had been taught through the education system, right? I have Celtic studies background, and I had been taught that the Irish language was never in Canada. And when you look at the numbers in Ireland and you look at the resources from Irish scholars saying the majority of people leaving Ireland at the time only spoke the Irish language. It's always been a mystical question to me as where the magical point in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean is when suddenly everyone forgot all of their Irish and became fluent English or French speakers. Yeah, And it really seems through the study that was not the case. We had multi-generational transmission of the language here in Canada, which again is mind-blowing, and that it really did survive for a quite a long time until some of the effects of the famine, the national school system, and just the inherited shame, especially um, after the Fenian raids, when it became much more of a dangerous thing to speak your language. And the shame of having the language really made it evaporate quite quickly that people didn't even want to say what language they spoke to their own children. Yeah, and it says so much. I mean, we we know we're much more alive now to the to the obliteration of language, right, mm -hmm. than we were before. And the idea that groups that have come to this country were groups that were already here, uh, did their were either forced to or did their best to assimilate. And part of that was linguistic. Um, when did it start to vanish from here? And, and and you mentioned why, but when did it start to truly be removed from the linguistic map of this country? Well, it was quite prevalent all the way through the 1860s. At a certain point, it was about one out of every 10 Canadians spoke either Irish Gaelic or Scottish Gaelic, and they had about equal numbers. It was a very prevalent element of the Canadian cultural landscape at that time. There was poets operating here in the Irish language, storytellers, and it was mostly about the 1870s to the 1890s that it seems that was when the heavy push, especially the national school system in Canada, where we have evidence of, of the language being beaten out of children with corporal punishment, it seems to be by that point, the very first census that asked people what their mother tongue was, was in 1901. 
And we could see that it still existed in the landscape, but that it had mostly by that point collapsed. And geographically, I mean, I've read that Newfoundland even had its own, I mean, it wasn't part of Canada at the time, but even had its own dialect at one point that has since somewhat sort of, I believe, has disappeared. But where were the pockets? If we talk about, you know, Thunder Bay and Finnish or uh, Icelandic and, and Gimli, for instance, where were the pockets of Irish in this country? Were they spread as spread out as the population itself? They were quite spread out. Yep. There was both rural communities. Uh, the one that's at the tip of my tongue, because it's near to my heart and near to where I live is Chelsea, Quebec. Mm -hmm. where that was, at a time, a monolingual Irish-speaking community. There are many places spread at Quebec City. There's Toronto. If we look at the famine, we could see that the population of Toronto was 20,000, but that they welcomed 38,000 Irish immigrants during the famine. So it almost doubled the population of it. And because of how well they were treated, that about 80% of those people survived. A lot of rural communities in the landscape had an Irish element to it, whether it was a few people or many people. And spread quite far across the country. You would find that in Red Deer, Alberta. You would find that outside of Winnipeg. You would find that in Vancouver itself. Uh, there's even evidence of Irish speakers being up in the Yukon. And beautiful stories that I've found of traditional Gaelic storytelling knights telling the really big epic stories while they're sitting around during the Klondike Gold Rush just up in, in the Yukon having a hut with 20 people that are all Irish speakers telling the ancient stories. Now you've gone through the process, and this has been interesting because in Ireland followed a very similar path. The language, there were certainly pockets of it, but for a while, the language certainly started to disappear, even in Ireland itself, which mirrored kind of what was going on amongst the diaspora around the world. Yes, it was after the famine, basically a global collapse of this. This was under the British imperial system, and there was not really room for other languages. Other languages and cultures were pushed to the side systemically, and the fact that Ireland had colony status under the British Empire meant they didn't have home rule, they didn't have any of these things yet. Currently, it is taught in the Irish education system. As to how many people actually speak it, there's only 1% of the population that is are still native speakers in the Irish language, and there are about 94,000 daily speakers of it in Ireland, uh, which is a quite a small language community, especially when it's so integral to the culture. It is just this depth of time and depth of history just built right into the language. And that's a very large part of why the education system specifically sought to remove the languages from people is to have people lose the sense of themselves to become basically what Britain hoped that their empire would become. I was I was surprised because I didn't know, and I've spent time in Ireland. I've been in in uh, in Heltex and, and you know Galtex areas where people communities where people speak Irish. I didn't realize we had one in Canada. It's the only one outside of Ireland, I believe. And you've been uh, int intimately involved with it. Yes, I would like to say it is one of the crown jewels, the hidden secret crown jewels we have here in Canada. It is the only one outside of Ireland. It's obviously different because there was a, bro a break in transmission. It operates as a, an immersive setting where you can actually come and you can be immersed in the language. The pandemic has actually served us quite well because we moved online and found that that really broadened the access to us and to our coursework that we have students now attending all the way from Mexico City up to Alaska. There is that desire for people to connect to their own history. And Irish is honestly a very difficult thing to connect to in Canada simply because of that, that history. I point to my own family in the 1860s. We changed our surnames so that we could hide the fact that we were Irish. So even with those effects, 
about 20% of the Canadian population still has Irish ancestry and has every right to retake this language. And it enriches every aspect of your life because it gives you that depth of understanding and that compassion when looking at the Canadian landscape and seeing Indigenous languages undergoing their own revitalization within their own native territories. Yeah, and, and part of it is 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 the fabric that is interwoven into this country, right? For exactly. all its warts and all its good and bad, uh, it's part of the fabric and the history of this country, the, the, the language, since so many people spoke it at one point, so many people who helped build this country. And we find a lot of that cultural echo still in the language because there are a lot of words in Irish that are untranslatable. Right. We, as I've said, have spoken this language for possibly at least the Iron Age, but possibly the Bronze Age, so about 5,000 years Compared to the English language as a little baby, the English language is only about a thousand years old at most. And there are simply terms that cannot be translated. So you would come across parents wanting to speak to their children and still stumbling across words that, well, I don't, I can't translate that. And they became Canadian dialectical words. We have these words living in our dialects, things like tooling about the countryside. Tooling well, about, like, right? Like the you're, going, right. you're going on a meandering journey clockwise to the sun with no real purpose. And that's <laughs> exactly right. what it is. Tooling around. We have right. the same thing out in Newfoundland, where, as you said, they did have a dialect. It was uh, an offshoot of the 1700s Waterford Irish. But unfortunately, there was no scholastic interest because this was a colonized language. There was unfortunately not really any studies done to to record the Newfoundland dialect before it died out in about First World War was when the last speakers of that might have died. Even there, there is a term that kind of encapsulates that idea of what is lost with languages, what is transferred, what echoes remain of uh, hang ashore. Hang ashore. Hang ashore. Someone who's afraid to go out on the ocean, right? Well, wow. oh, the poor, you talk about him with pity. He's a hang ashore. He just, right. and that is from children hearing their parents say a word and not knowing that word and never really being told that word because they aren't taught that language. Ein ashore. Ein ashore right. is a wretched, pitiable person. Really? So Ein ashore sounds like hang ashore, but it's actually ashore, somewhat, somewhat more dismissive. Yeah. Yeah. And it is simply that the children were hearing this word and not knowing what it was, and they could not be told what it was. We have the same thing from just across from me here in Gatineau. I had a student come to me and say that there's this word they use in her dialect called streels. Ah, oh, he's such a streeler. He's so streel. streeler. Right. And that's just like a dirty, unkempt person or a broken yeah. down thing. Again, the Irish streelia, which is a dirty, unkempt person. We have streeler. over a thousand words just for describing people. Right. You can't translate all those quite concisely into one word in English. How fascinating. That, that, I mean, I didn't know that. I mean, it makes perfect sense that those words would find their way, or at least some of them would, would stay, right? Oftentimes, words do. They just hang about because they describe something well, or you've heard them before. Ultimately, you'd like to see at least the Irish language get a foothold in this country again, where enough people understand bits and pieces of it that they can understand where part of our heritage comes from. And do it through your own whale talks, right? The, do it through my right? own whale talks. Yeah, do it through my own whale talks. Right that's it exactly, which is is a quite a thing. It was first founded by someone from Red Deer, Alberta, uh, who was one of the, you said, you mentioned Sligo yourself. One of the yeah. last speakers from Sligo, supposedly, was his father. And they moved across, and he was raised in Ireland himself. And he started this whale talk project because he saw the need that you can only learn so much out of a book. But to actually know the culture and know the language, you have to be immersed in it. And the only opportunity for that outside of Canada is to have to go to Ireland. Yep. So now that we have this in Canada, we have people from all of North America coming. 
And what we're teaching them is, again, radically different. We're teaching you how to clean a toilet in Irish. We're teaching you how to make an, a fried egg in Irish. Elements that you actually need to know to live your life daily and keep this language alive, rather than having the high level of what I got going through the university system in, in Ontario learning Irish, which was you can attend a lecture on psychology, but don't ask you to know what the word for a hammer or a band-aid is, right? Right. And, and one more time, say Pat, happy St. Patrick's Day in Irish since we're, since we're celebrating it today. La le padrig sonne rit. La le padrig sonne rit, which is the day of the festival of St. Patrick. May it be happy on you. Donald Duell, thank you so much for uh, walking us through that fascinating history. Well, thank you. And I'll leave you off on one more Canadian dialect word, yep. which is so long. Really? Which comes from our word slon, which is completeness, health, have safety. Completeness, so, health, have safety. So wow, there you go. So long. <laughs> you learn something new absolutely every day in this job. It's the best part about it. Thank you so much, Donald. Well, lovely. And if anyone is interested, we do have our website is www.gaelige, which is the name of the language, G-A-E-I-L-G-E dot C-A. And everyone is welcome on any uh, platform that they are able to. We're marking St. Patrick's Day here on a little more conversation with a name like Ben O'Hara Byrne. You'll probably understand I have a few Irish roots in me. And I thought tonight we would talk about things related to St. Patrick's Day that don't have to do with green beer. Uh, I did ask you to send in your favorite songs. and You've been sending them in, and that's great. We're going to try and play as many of them as we can. Obviously, we're, uh, you know, we're a bit limited in time, but uh, Tell My Ma Will is a good one. That's a good one. And Dreams by the Cranberries. That's, uh, yeah, I love the Cranberries. What a great, so sorry, so sad to, le- to lose Dolores O'Riordan so young. They were a great band. You know, growing up in, a, um, in an Irish family, I mean, we've been, the family's been here for a very long time, so Canadian more than anything else, but you know, I always had very vivid memories of the troubles, of the violence, the sectarian violence that plagued Northern Ireland for most of my youth, right? I mean, my images of Northern Ireland growing up were of Falls Road and Shank Hill and bombings and car bombs and, you know, police soldiers on the streets and all the things that we would see on TV. And I remember going there for the first time in 1995 and being struck by just how small everything was. Northern Ireland is not a big place. Uh, and it's kind of rolling and it looks, you know, to me, it kind of looked like, you know, the Ottawa Valley and it was small, it was tiny, all these places I'd read about and seen over the years, the places of these, you know, awful incidents, they were all these kind of little towns and it was really hard to figure out how these groups had lived um, near with each other for, for so long in, in such, with so much violence, right? And then 25 years ago, this April, the Good Friday Agreement was signed. And that essentially brought uh, brought peace. It didn't end all the all the problems. It certainly didn't end the divisions, but it brought peace to Northern Ireland. And I remember going there again in 1998 uh, for Christmas because my mom was living in Northern Ireland. She was studying there, and I went to visit her for Christmas. And you could, you know, 1995 was kind of the first summer of peace, and then 98 you could feel the impacts of the Good Friday Agreement having settled in. You know, it was it was a really heady time to be there, um, and. It's pretty much stayed that way. Part of the issue for the longest time was that Northern Ireland, as be, you know, as part of the UK, was part of the European Union. Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, was also part of the European Union. So there was no border on the island of Ireland anymore. That border that had been so controversial and it, and it had been such a scene of attacks over the years was gone. They tore down all the big infrastructure to protect that border. And then all of a sudden, it was you could go right across it, no problem. And then Brexit came along, Right. And so Britain uh, withdraws from the European Union. And all of a sudden, what do you do with that border? Because technically, 
Northern Ireland is no longer part of the European Union, and the Republic of Ireland, with which it shares an island, is. So what happened? How could it work out? Well, it's been a really thorny issue ever since Brexit happened about seven years ago now. Um, and they've had a real real trouble trying to solve it. It's created divisions within Northern Ireland again. They haven't really had a functioning government in a very long time in Northern Ireland. Well, last week, the new Prime Minister of Britain, Rishi Sunak, and the head of the European Union did strike a deal that's supposed to try to put some of this to rest. And all this comes as the President, Joe Biden's heading to, so is, so is Bill Clinton, are all heading to Ireland to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. So what will they land in? What is the situation? Could Brexit ultimately disrupt that very fragile piece that exists there? Joining me now is Samantha Tweetmeyer. She's a doctoral candidate in political studies at Queen's University. Sam, thanks. Thank you very much for having me. We're coming up on the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, of course, which was a major landmark in in Irish in Northern Irish Irish relations. But for a long time, there was one issue that was pretty straightforward. That was the border, because Britain was part of the European Union, so Ireland and Northern Ireland were both part of the European Union. That border that had been so defended for so long was suddenly very permeable and one you could go across very easily. And then Brexit happened. What happened to that whole arrangement when Brexit happened uh, eight, seven years ago now? Yeah, well, so you absolutely hit the nail on the head with the fact that the fact that the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom were both in the European Union, you know, heading into the the Belfast Agreement meant that they could, you know, sell the agreement as a win-win for everyone, you know, the the Protestants or the Unionists in Northern Ireland got to feel that they were still part of the UK. And meanwhile, there's no border on the island because they're all in the EU common market. And so the, the you know, the Catholic or nationalist population in Northern Ireland feels like it's part of Ireland. So win-win, right? When Brexit happens, suddenly there's going to have to be a border somewhere. We're going to have to draw a line between what is the UK and what is the European Union, and that means what is Ireland. That's really where the the conflict starts to emerge once again, because drawing an, a line across the island of Ireland is what, you know, was one of the core factors in the conflict that, you know, 30 years of violence that uh, overtook the area in the 70s, 80s. Yeah, yeah I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way in the sense that it did allow both sides to be able to look you know, one side to look to Ireland to the south, the other side to look across the water to the United Kingdom and still feel that sense of of belonging, even uh-huh. though the agreement was in place. Uh, what's happened since then? Because it's become a very thorny issue in Northern Ireland, how to try to figure out where this goes from here and where does what does that border look like? Absolutely. And so what we see, you know, by the time the Brexit withdrawal agreement is is formalized, the deal that is struck between the UK and the European Union is this thing called the protocol. And basically the agreement came down that the European Union was never going to see a border, uh, like a hard border, a customs check on the island of Ireland. They believed that that would completely negate the Belfast Agreement. It would require a complete renegotiation of that agreement. And they, you know, the UK sort of got on board with that as well. So they put a border in the Irish Sea, which is the air, you know, the water that, that divides the north of Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom. Um, right. And what I mean by border is is just a customs check. It's uh, it's a goods and services customs check to monitor, um, you know, trade goods leaving the UK for Northern Ireland 
as long to make sure nothing gets into the EU that is not approved by the EU and vice versa, that European Union goods are not going into Northern Ireland and then going over to the UK without approval. And that worked just fine for, you know, Sinn Féin and the the Social Democratic and Labour Party, who are the two parties in Northern Ireland that represent the uh, Northern Irish Catholics. They were fine with that deal because it meant that they did not have a border on the island of Ireland. You know, that worked. Right. They they were still looking. They were still looking south. But what for those for the unionists who were looking across the water to the UK, suddenly they, they felt like they were cut off. They do. Exactly. So the the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, that's who you're going to hear the most about in the news right now. I mean, the Americans are all talking about it. So they this party is is forefront of the debate of, you know, we cannot have this. We cannot have something that treats Ireland differently or Northern Ireland, sorry, differently Mm -hmm. to the rest of the UK. We cannot feel divided from the UK, this is a threat to their sort of share of the Good Friday Agreement. The result of this has been that they have refused to form government for, you know, we're going into about four years without. And, uh, and yeah, so they're very much concerned, you know, if they give up this bargaining chip, you know, the, the, the refusal to sit in the government is sort of their main bargaining chip to try and ensure that the result of this Brexit process is not a border between Northern Ireland and the UK. Yeah, and and certainly some kind of border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, right? Yeah. Which is which is I mean, what's what's ironic about this of course is that Brexit sort of triggered all this a, a resurgence of all this this stuff that is historical, right? It's been around for Absolutely. this has been the argument from the get-go, the border. We have some sort of breakthrough, at least Rishi Sunak, the uh, the new Brit- British prime minister, and uh, the EU seem to have reached some sort of deal here. Uh, what does it do and is it sellable? Right. So um, the New Deal and and one of the really uh, frustrating things, if you're a, you know, a person like me who researches Northern Ireland specifically, is how little say they get to have in these things. This is That's the right. UK and the EU are, are you know, the yeah. rich Ireland and, and Northern, yeah, you're right. Ireland Ursula von der Leyen, right? Yeah. They're doing this. Yeah. So they've come to this new arrangement, the Windsor framework. It's it's replacing the protocol. Should it should it be passed, which it presumably will. So it does a couple of key things to change the protocol to try and make it more appetizing, both to the UK and to the Unionists in Northern Ireland. The first thing it does is it makes the right now under the protocol, the customs checks are complicated. There's a lot going on there. Everything is going through customs. The new agreement has a green lane and a red lane. So basically, if, if the goods can be confirmed that they will not be leaving the UK at all, then they just go through the green lane. There's no processing. So it speeds up. It makes the economy relate, the economic relationship between Northern Ireland and the rest of the components of the United Kingdom, you know, it, it much eases easier. Up yeah, yeah. Because part of this was, was as much as it was sort of historical and about the Irish question, part of it too was, was bureaucratic, right? And this mm. has been a constant yeah. throughout Brexit that there has been these bureaucratic issues around customs and so forth. For sure. And I mean, it, you know, with the withdrawal, the biggest hit the withdrawal uh, from the EU is is making on the whole of the UK is economic, right? right? It's these new trade relationships. And so this is this is priority number one is how do we make sure that we're not being negatively impacted with the bureaucracy and the expense that's required with these new trade re- regulations? And what does it do about the border? What does it do about this idea of needing some sort of border between what is now the United Kingdom, a non-European Union country, and the Republic of Ireland, which is? 
They're keeping this customs border in the Irish Sea, so that's not being moved. What is being uh, adjusted is this really innovative effort that's being made, It's which they're calling the Stormont Break. So Stormont is the name of the building that the Northern Ireland Assembly, the local government in Northern Ireland, it's there, you know, to like be like Parliament House. And just a little, just backing up ever so slightly, one of the big complaints that was part of Brexit with the EU is that you don't have a say in the EU's decision making. So if the EU make a a decision that's going to impact trade policy, you don't have a say in that. And because Northern Ireland is in the EU side of this. Um, yeah, so quite, quite, quite unwillingly, for some at least, it finds itself still in the unwilling. EU kind of, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so EU uh, officials get to make decisions which are going to directly impact Northern Ireland, and Northern Ireland doesn't have a say. So the Windsor framework gives them a say. It's called the Stormont right. Break. And 30 members of the Legislative Assembly have to vote for a break. So what happens is if the EU is going to pass a law that would unfairly impact Northern Ireland, then with 30 signatures, they can pull the break. And then that will go to, uh, you know, Westminster. Rishi Sunak, it'll go up to the, the government of the UK to approve and move forward. And at the point that it's approved, the EU cannot pass that policy for four weeks while it undergoes sort of analysis and renegotiation. So it goes from Brussels to Belfast to London, back to Brussels, yeah. ostensibly <laughs> maybe back to Belfast. Sam Tweetmeyer is with us, doctoral candidate in political studies at Queen's University. We're talking about Northern Ireland. A lot going on there post-Brexit. It's been a very thorny issue for Northern Ireland. It's, of course, still part of the island of Ireland. Uh, the Republic of Ireland to the south is still a member of the European Union. So what do you do with that border? Uh, you know, do you bring it back in? It was gotten rid of back in uh, the late 90s after that peace agreement, the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, what do you do now? And that's been sort of the quandary since. Um, we're about to mark 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement. It was a landmark agreement ending what we all grew up with, which was the Troubles, called the Troubles in Northern Ireland, decades of sectarian violence. Is I mean, there's a bigger thing going on here around Brexit because it's it's sort of unearthed some old grievances. Does it? Is there any risk here that what's going on now undermines some of the advances that we saw with the Good Friday Agreement? Yeah. So one of the one of the huge advances that we see with the Good Friday Agreement is the establishment of the power sharing regime in Northern Ireland. Certainly, what has happened is it has been disrupted. The fact that we are heading into the 25th anniversary on April 12th, and there hasn't been a sitting government in Northern Ireland in many years, is that in and of itself is a sign that something is wrong, something's not working, and it is a result of Brexit and these debates around the protocol or now the Windsor framework. What does Northern Ireland's relationship with the UK and with Ireland look like uh, moving forward? Because we have been hearing, and we were talking about it earlier, I believe Liam Neeson, the actor, came out, he's Irish, came out this, or Northern Irish, rather, came out this uh, this week and talked about the fact, talked about seeing unification. It feels like there are a lot of those big questions about the future of Northern Ireland and its relationship with the Republic that were not were left unanswered for many years. Everyone seemed to get along when the borders were clear and people were making money and trade was flowing mm-hmm. back and forth. And now all of a sudden, there's a question, there's a, there's a wrench in there. And it feels like, some of those old grievances could easily pop back up. 
Absolutely. So one of the reasons why a lot of people in the last year have really started talking about uh, a potential unity vote, um, and for our listeners who don't know, that's included in the Good Friday Agreement. There right. is a mechanism by which a vote can be called on the island. The whole island has to vote, including the Republic of Ireland, um, to reunite the island. There's been a lot of talk about that. And one of the reasons that talk has picked up is that in the last elections held in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin took the largest number of seats in the government. Now, I want to stress it is a power sharing government, so it doesn't mean that they control the government. It just means that historically, the DUP has always taken the most seats and they've been first minister and Sinn Féin's been second minister and now that's been flipped but they have the same sort of authority. Um, for, for listeners who forget Sinn Féin was for a long time the political arm of the IRA so I mean this is a, yeah, fierce, a fiercely, yeah. fiercely nationalist group and it says more about the demographics of Northern Ireland and where it's going than than anything else really politically right? Yes, exactly. So a lot of people have taken this this win, this as a sign, you know, that oh well, the, that means that Irish side of Northern Ireland is is picking up, it's gaining strength. One of the things that we do have to keep an eye on, though, is that in that election, the unionist parties split the vote. Right. Um, a lot of people have abandoned the DUP because the DUP has been so hardline on the protocol and has been causing a lot of uh, sort of domestic grief in Northern Ireland because their refusal to sit in the government has meant that a lot of day-to-day governing is not getting done. Unionists, they're not going to vote for Sinn Féin. They're not, but right. they are going to vote for other unionist parties. And so what we do see in that election result isn't necessarily that Sinn Féin suddenly a much stronger party and that there's this big United Ireland vote happening. It's that the vote of the unionist community is getting split up because they're divided on where they see Northern Ireland going. Sam, I think we know more now than we did when we started this. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me and happy St. Patrick's Day. 